You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is a production of Policy Forum at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. And if you're thinking about improving your policymaking skills, then look no further. Crawford School has a wide range of degrees and short courses available for you. Go check them out. Crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, today we've got our Christmas jumpers on. We're all wearing our novelty hats that fell out of crackers and we're already regretting some of our food choices as we bring you our final festively jam-packed episode for the year. So for this last episode for this year, we've gathered some of the pod family together and we will do our best to try and get along and avoid the inevitable family rows. So let's say hello to them. First gathered around the Christmas tree is Sue Regan. Sue is a PhD scholar here at Crawford School. Hello, Sue. How are you? I'm well, Martin. I promise to be on my best behaviour today. Are you feeling very festive? I am. Always festive. I love Christmas. So, Sue, I've got a question for you. Which Christmas family member would you be? I've got three choices for you. Would you be the person most likely to buy everyone exactly the same socks because they were on special at Aldi? Would you be the person who eats all of the trifle before Christmas dinner is even ready? Or would you be the person who grumbles and makes derisory comments all the way through the Queen's speech? Well, Martin, you you didn't consult me on this question, but you have nailed it. I am definitely (laughs) the person most likely to buy everyone the same socks at Aldi. I just, uh, yeah, love a bargain and... You know, socks are the best Christmas present ever, aren't they? Everyone needs socks. Yeah, yeah. Is everyone happy with the gift that uh, Sue has given? (laughs) And what about what about you, Martin? Which of those would you be? I would definitely be the person who grumbles and makes derisory comments all the way through the Queen's speech. But I would probably, you know, be grumbling and making derisory comments all the way through Christmas Day. (laughs) Bit of a Christmas Grinch. (laughs) So the next person gathered around the Christmas tree is none other than Sharon Bessel. Sharon is, of course, a professor here at Crawford School, and she's the section editor of Policy Forum. Poverty in Focus section. She's also the ANU co-lead of the Individual Deprivation Measure. So Sharon, your Christmas question is, what Christmas song are you going to make us sing after we've all had a few too many sherries? Uh, Well, I I should preface this by saying I love Christmas. It is my absolutely favourite time of the year. So I adore and will sing any Christmas carol that happens to be played at the moment. But after a few sherries, I become quite sentimental. I would say we have to sing Silent Night. I would sing it completely out of tune. <laughs> I would then tell the story whereby apparently during World War One, on Christmas Eve, British troops and German troops were both singing Christmas carols. They realised that while they, while they couldn't understand the words, they could understand the tune and they were each singing Silent Night. And Julia can tell us what that would be in German. <laughs> uh, Stille Nacht. And they came together. They left the trenches. They came together and met and celebrated Christmas and then went back to the fighting afterwards. So at this point, I would be in tears. I would talk about the peace of Christmas and I would continue to drink more sherries. It's <laughs> <laughs> so sweet, Sharon. <laughs> I, I, I say that so convincingly because I do that every year. <laughs> So this is what your family have got in store. Oh, they can barely wait. Yes. <laughs> uh, the, the last but certainly not the, the least person gathered around the Christmas tree is uh, Yulia Ahrens. Yulia is a presenter on Policy Forum Pod. She's also the communications and marketing coordinator at Crawford School. So Yulia, inevitably, uh, at a Christmas family gathering, we're going to run out of things to say to each other after an hour or two. So you're going to be our games master. Oh, and <laughs> what 
what board game are you going to make us endure this Christmas? I, I do actually enjoy a good board game. It's a very hard decision to make that. I mean, if you really want to have a bad time, you should probably play Risk, which <laughs> is very widely known for uh, destroying friendships and family relations. So if you enjoy that, if you're a bit of a Christmas Grinch like me, we've discussed this just before we went into the pod studio. Twister would probably be hilarious. I would love to see the panel play Twister. <laughs> Especially after but, several cherries. Yeah. Particularly after that. Um, and otherwise, I think uh, Cards Against Humanity would mm. probably be, I mean, that's you have a, to have a particularly dark sense of humor for it. To that's work. a very anti-Christmas kind yeah. of game, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but admittedly, I'm a bit of a Grinch as well. So I think I, I'd still enjoy that. Yulia, you should add to your list Border Dash, which is a game based around lying to and trying to fool your friends and family. So I think for you, this would be the perfect Christmas game. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Sharon. I'll add it. it I'll add it to the list. I don't have it yet. So maybe that's a Christmas gift potentially (laughs) for myself. So for our last episode this year, we are going to take a look back over the year just gone. Not so much a visit from ghosts of Christmas past, but more like catching up with those relatives and family members that you've briefly enjoyed time with over the last 12 months. And what a year it's been. In April, we introduced our Democracy Sausage podcast series with Mark Kenny. Overall, we've published 113 podcasts this year, covering a huge range of important policy questions. And many of those topics have come as suggestion from you, our listeners. So at this point, I'd like to thank all of you for your great ideas, suggestions, questions and comments for all of those podcasts. It absolutely wouldn't be the same without you. So each of our panelists today is going to pick out some of their favorite pods from the year and tell us why. But like any good Christmas party, there'll be a few surprises along the way. So let's get this Christmas party started. Sue, how about you unwrap the first present for us and tell us what podcast is inside? Right. Well, the the first pod that uh, I've chosen uh, was called uh, People Power Beyond the Ballot Box. Um, On this pod, we talked to Carolyn Hendricks, Peter Martin uh, and Jennifer Lee Smarshment about the troubles with political participation. Um, From protests on the one hand to complete disengagement on the other, our panel gives their ideas and recommendations on how to get politicians to lend you their ears. Let's have a listen to a clip. Um, And they need their own processes for deliberation. And so citizens' juries are becoming processes through which decision makers can also hear from a, a, a sort of step back from issues away from the partisan politics. So they have their role, um, but there's a movement in the deliberative democracy kind of design field to try and mix the citizens with the, MP- the, the, the decision makers themselves. So Ireland's been experimenting with this where you get some politicians in with randomly selected citizens. And that, that is a very rich combination. So what I liked about this uh, pod was really how it showcased all the different um, ways in which uh, people can and are engaging uh, with politics beyond uh, voting. Uh, we heard Carolyn there speaking about uh, some of the innovations and particularly this idea of getting the getting ministers and decision makers, you know, directly engaged and deliberating on complex policy issues with members of the public. Um, you know, and there was also ideas around how we make public engagement processes more enduring. Uh, so we don't just have lots of ad hoc consultations. Uh, and, you know, and Jennifer t- talked a lot about how we can, uh, how we need to prever- preserve and use data from public engagement better. Um, but the thing I really liked about it was, uh, was also about profiling the role of the member of parliament, you know, uh, and how, uh, we need to get to know our politicians more, you know, go and see our constituency MP. Um, you know, Peter talked about how, um, most MPs are nice people. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a very positive. Sometimes we kind of, uh, we skip over the actual politician. So yeah. Peter actually encouraged making friends with the senator. Did you take him up on that advice? Have you made friends with the citizens? No, I, I haven't yet. Um, I've, I've been friends with politicians in the past, and uh, I think it is a. It's a. Uh, I think he's right. They're generally good, nice people working hard, um, and it is that you know it's a uh, a very 
effective way to influence, you know, and to get engaged in uh, in politics. Um, I don't know about others, whether anyone else is talking to politicians at the moment. Uh, we've recently talked to a few politicians, to Shane Rattenbury and Andrew Lee, and they just seemed like perfectly normal and nice human beings. So I could definitely recommend people <laughs> uh, just getting in, into conversation with them. They have so many smart things to say. Sharon, it kind of – there's this kind of narrative that politicians are all – crooked and they're all divorced from reality and they're all looking out for themselves. But that's not really borne out by the reality, is it? No, well, I guess fundamentally politicians are human beings. And so some of them may well be crooked. Um, some of them may well be divorced from reality, probably in about the same proportion as the rest of the population. And some of them are committed, caring human beings. And some of them are flawed and fabulous like the rest of us in equal measure. So I, I think that's probably one of the, the things that happens when people are in parliament, that people see them as something different, whereas actually politicians are just like the rest of us and, and have the same spread of um, personality traits. But I think engaging with politicians is really important. And that can happen through a friendship, but it can also happen through advocacy and lobbying um, and through a whole range of, of, of avenues. So um Engaging with politicians as we expect them to gauge, engage with the electorate is really fundamentally important to democracy. So that could be a really good Christmas gift for you, make make friends with a politician, or a really good Christmas gift for the politician. Yes, or New Year's resolution even. <laughs> I, I advise after you have had a few sherries, sung Silent Night, <laughs> talked about <laughs> peace and goodwill, you phone your local parliamentarian <laughs> That is the time. Tell them about the world. That's the time to pick up the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Yulia, you're next. What is in that mysterious box that you've hastily wrapped with? What even is that? Birthday paper? Well, I, I still had some left, and I'm very uh, bad at buying Christmas gifts, so I just use whatever I can. So, I did. Yes, I did reuse um, some birthday gift paper. So, uh, my chosen podcast is the uh, very first life pot that we did with John Hewson, Imran Ahmad, Liz Hanna, and Shane Rattenbury, and we discussed whether Australia should declare a climate emergency, and we recorded this last month um, at the Great Green Debate together with the ANU Learning Communities. And it was a great experience. I think one of my favourite things about it was that we also used um, an app to get the audience engaged. So this is one of the reasons why it really stuck with me. It was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Oh, really, really enjoyable. A lot of work as well, though. (laughs) All right. Well, let's have a listen to a clip from that. The ACT was the first state or territory jurisdiction in Australia to declare a climate emergency when the Assembly passed a motion to that effect in May. For me, this is not just about the symbolic statement, it's actually about being very clear that the Parliament owns that declaration. We need to embody that urgency in our day-to-day decision-making. That's what the effect of declaring a climate emergency is for me. It means governments need to be thinking every time they take a decision that can have a climate impact, are they taking a decision that reflects the urgency of the need to act. That is, for me, what a climate emergency is about. The other point I would make is it is important that it's not just a statement, but that it does actually reflect action. Uh, and you know, I am worried that in some places we see the statement being made, but the action not coming through with it. So what Shane said there really resonated with me, particularly the part where he was talking about firstly trying to have action follow the promises and to see every decision that a council or a parliament makes in the light of uh, the climate emergency. And it 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 really resonates with me because I come from a city in northern Germany, Kiel, which is overall pretty insignificant, small city. But uh, we declared a climate emergency in May 2019 as well, and we so so the city council said it would see every decision it makes in the light of climate change. So basically, what Shane was addressing there. But at the same time, um, we've had 160 cruise ships. 
um, basically anchoring in our harbour in the last year. So, and they um, are allowed to use land electricity, but they choose not to do that because it's more expensive to use the land electricity as compared to the electricity they can generate with their diesel engines. So we can't enforce that and they are polluting the air in in the city. And that is sort of like a goes to show how how frustrating it can be to see this commitment made, but at the same time, no action following. So that's why it really resonated with me what Shane said. And I hope we can make more progress towards this action that we need and not just saying the words. I think this was a, a fantastic live pod and such a great experience. It was an incredible panel. So if anyone hasn't listened to this one, I would encourage them to do so because it's harder to, to, to think of a more important issue. You know, Yulia, your example just demonstrates that. And it's hard to think of a better panel to talk about some of these things. But what I will remember from that great green debate and what was so powerful for me was being able to see the people in the audience and to watch their responses to the discussion and to see just how engaged people are in this issue and how committed they are to thinking about change. And so it was a great panel. It was a great discussion. But seeing that engagement was was really incredible. And we had more questions than we could answer. So we actually had to produce a follow-up episode for this because there was so, so much engagement that came out of that. And such great questions. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed the live event and I really enjoyed the follow-up podcast and uh, lots of lots of very important issues that we covered in that. And also, I particularly enjoyed it because I found out that Shane Rattenbury, like me, is a Crystal Palace fan. So basically, <laughs> I, I, found, say it. I found Canberra's only other Crystal Palace fan. And sorry for outing you there, Shane. I, I don't think there's anything we can say about that, no, Martin. No. <laughs> but, yeah, but thank you for choosing it, Julia. I think it would have been remiss if we weren't talking about a climate change pod this year. I mean, it's such a, as Sharon said, such a pressing issue. Um, you know, and we've talked about it a lot on the podcast and it, but we really, you know, we all need to keep profiling it. So we thank do. you. Great choice. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Now it's time for the first of our Christmas surprises. He couldn't be with us today, but he has left us a gift under the tree. It's our regular pod presenter, Paul Verville. Uh, he's not the gift, to clarify. He's left us a gift. Uh, he popped into the studio earlier this week to tell us his pick of the year. So let's have a listen to that. Hi, it's Paul here. I've been asked to have a, a chat about one of my favorite podcasts uh, this year, and I think my favorite one was one where I was a presenter, and that's uh, Licit Drug Policy, More Harm Than Good. And now, one of, one of the things that is a re- I really enjoy about Policy Forum podcasts is, is I learn a lot, particularly about topics where you know, I, may not, I may have a cursory understanding of some of the issues from media, but then having an opportunity to really dig in a bit deeper and understand more. And it's even more so when I'm actually involved in in presenting the podcast and, and being in the room while the discussion's going on. Now, with this one, uh, yeah, I, I really had a great time with this. Uh, Des, Tracy, and David had a really fascinating ex- exchange. Some of the things I learned about uh, were uh, included things along the lines of uh, ACT's new cannabis laws and and, and whether that it's a good thing for states to go first as opposed to uh, reform happening at the federal level. Also, the discussion around you know, whether cannabis legalization you know, needs to really involve quality control at the same time. And some of particularly David's insights on, on the evidence base around pill testing and, and that the evidence base is there, and I think it was shared across the panel, how that evidence base just doesn't really seem to be reflected in policy. Another one of the things that I think you know, for anyone who, who's listened to it, and, and I'd really urge all our listeners to do that, is that it's a very passionate discussion. And whilst the, the participants were broadly in agreement, they, they disagreed on a few different areas. But I think one thing that they really all share is that uh, they want positive social change on these issues. And uh, maybe something that our listeners wouldn't, wouldn't obviously wouldn't be aware of is that the, the discussion actually didn't just stop uh, with, with what we recorded. It went on for a long time. Des, Tracy, and David were having such a good time that uh, it, it continued on for another 15, 20 minutes. And I think 
by the end, they, they were talking about collaboration, research funding, and all these sorts of options. And for me, that's really exciting to be involved in those sorts of discussions that, that also lead to, lead to much more. So that's my favorite uh, from this year. And let's have a listen to a couple of highlights here. The whole nature of prohibition has driven the number and variety of drugs on the global market through the roof, exponentially increasing that which this generation can consume. And the only way that we can interfere with the decision-making process of those people who, despite all the warnings, decide to use drugs is to show some compassion show some understanding, and to provide them with data that they crave. And again, when that is done, we, we hear these daft arguments which are completely unfounded that it, it doesn't work for MDMA, it doesn't work for ecstasy. It's rubbish. You know, for decades we have seen, and now it's been published, that when young people have a conversation, oftentimes for the first time they've ever had a reasonable conversation about drugs, one that hasn't come from the lips of a giraffe as it is in Australia, um, they make and change decisions. Yeah, that actually was a fantastic discussion. I sat in on that together with Paul, and I remember that really leaving uh, like an emotional impression on me. There were three extremely passionate people talking about uh, illicit drug policy, and what particularly resonated with me was the argument, I think Desmond brought it up, that basically when you have complete prohibition, you pay the price of probably more people dying from drug use, whereas if you have harm reduction policies in place, you have fewer people dying, maybe a few more using drugs, but in a safe in a safe way. And it's a sort of almost like an um, ethical decision that you have to make between either one of them. And I thought that was so powerful because, I mean, it, if I think almost every human being that thinks about it is like, well, if we if we have more people dying when we have very, very strict drug policies, then I think the choice should be pretty obvious. One of the themes I thought was interesting, and Paul picked up on it in his comments there, was how uh, how the, the evidence base isn't reflected in drug policy. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we, I think we increasingly know that evidence is only one part of how policies get made. And, you know, particularly in drug policy, it's such a contested area in terms of the different values that people bring to it and the different interests different groups have that, you know, that we have to, we have to use the evidence, but also, you know, think about how they all play out in this and they, you know, and they play out in really difficult ways in this policy area. I, I thought this pod was such a useful discussion um, in informing thinking on all of the consequences of the current approach to drug policy. And I've been thinking about that a lot in relation to the debates that have been playing out about the strip searching of young people. And of course, I work on issues around the human rights of children and young people, so have been particularly exercised about this particular abuse of, of young people's rights. Um, but I think, you know, what that, that pod did was gave us, um, some some really useful thinking to be able to work through what drug policy currently is, what that means in terms of the way those policies are implemented and the way prohibition is policed, and then what that means for, a, for people's lives in a whole range of areas that may actually um, be distant from those really important dramatically important issues of life and death that you talk about, Yulia, but just in terms of people's um, engagement in social events, people's safety to, to being their communities and whether people are going to be um, a, a accused or suspected of engaging in Ill illegal behaviour because of the nature of our drug policy and the assumptions that that creates about young people's behaviour. So I felt that that pod was just so valuable in helping to clarify thinking about how we move away from some of the, the rather bad practices that are associated with current policy. And drug policy is a really interesting one, I think, because a lot of public policy 
seems to move at a fairly kind of glacial pace. We think of you know climate change and just how long it takes to get kind of global agreement in terms of tackling something as important as that. But drug policy around the world, we're seeing lots of countries legalizing certain drugs or decriminalizing certain drugs. In the UK at the moment, uh, two of the parties, the Greens and the Lib Dems, I think, have committed to legalizing cannabis, the Labour Party has committed to doing an inquiry into doing it. So drug policy seems to be one of these areas of public policy that's moving at a fairly rapid rate. I think, you know, going back to my earlier point, I I think the evidence is playing a role. I think, you know, there's uh, increasing uh, evidence um, of particular uh, of the effectiveness of particular interventions like drug testing at, at carnivals, at, at festivals. Um, so I think that's perhaps playing part of a role. I think it's also, you know, as you highlighted, Martin, uh, sometimes policy issues get a momentum globally. There's so much, um, uh, you know, global communication now that it's very easy for uh, policymakers and indeed the, bro- the broader public to see policy changes happening uh, in other countries and then to, you know, then have much more hope that it can occur in their own jurisdiction. Um, so, yeah, there does seem to be yeah, a lot of momentum at the moment in this area. I guess this is an area too where, you know, we use the single term of drugs, mm. but we're describing things from, you know, arguably alcohol, which is legal, um, all the way through to something like ice, which has absolutely devastating consequences for individuals and everyone around them and everything in between. Yeah. So bringing a little bit of nuance to exactly what we mean when we're talking about drug policy is just so important. It was a great pod. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for picking that, Paul. I, it's just three incredibly passionate researchers all sharing their research and evidence in a really good discussion. If you haven't listened to it already, listeners, do check it out. It's called Illicit Drug Policy, More Harm Than Good. Now, Sharon, you strike me as the kind of person who would put a lot of thought into your Christmas gifts. So please present your outstanding Christmas gift. Thank you, Martin, because unlike my dear colleague Sue, I don't buy socks at Audi. I start planning (laughs) in January what I'm going to buy people for the next year. And I buy across the year and I choose for the individuals. So here you go. And this present, because my son has been. Do you banned... feel suitably shamed? <laughs> you should. Never shall you buy another pair of socks. I, I feel shamed, but still strangely proud. <laughs> Shaming your friends. Isn't that just the spirit of Christmas? <laughs> Sorry, Sue. Now, now. My um, my son has banned Christmas paper in our household because it's environmentally unsound. So this present is in a Christmas bag that has Velcro on the top so people can't peek and is reusable year after year. So there you go. Perhaps everyone would like to follow that lead. <laughs> the pod that I've chosen is called A Sense of Social Insecurity. This was an in- incredibly powerful episode. We spoke with Matt Gray, with Nicole Wiggins and John Falzon about tackling poverty in Australia. We canvassed a range of things, how we should measure poverty, what's causing it, why there seems to be precious little political will to actually do something, um, and what policies could be put in place to make a difference in people's lives and to do so quickly. So maybe we can have a a, a listen to part of that audio. So at the Early Morning Centre, we have a number of rough sleepers. I wouldn't have the numbers, but something perhaps 20, even 30, who are not on benefits they're just that you know the restrictions are so tough. The requirements they have to meet um, that they're just unable to sort of manage to get in and you know to get to the interviews to fill in all the forms. Um, it's just too hard and difficult, and so they're just not on benefits. They've given up. So the clip that we we heard there, I think, goes to the heart of the problems of our current approach to poverty in Australia. Um, And to me, it goes to the heart of just how inhuman and how unethical our approach currently is when we have people choosing to live in more desperate poverty rather than engage with the system because they're fearful of how they'll be treated by the system. Um, What was really interesting to me about this particular discussion was that we had people from really different perspectives. So Nicole, who we heard speaking, um, is a, a service provider. She's really on the ground every day 
day supporting people who are homeless and who are in need. Uh, we had Matthew Gray, who's a researcher, um, does really incredible research, but generally using big data sets. So someone who you, know, you may say is, is a little removed from the, the kind of approach that Nicole takes. And we had John Falzon, who is, I guess I would describe as an incredibly informed activist and commentator um, and someone with years of experience both on the ground and in research. And essentially, they all came together, <laughs> despite somewhat different, you know, different takes on, on detail, but they all came together to say, our system is broken and people are suffering and we need to do it better and differently. Um, and so if I had one message to our friends in parliament who make decisions, it would be listen to this pod and think about the lives of the people. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The policy impacts on because it is just good, not good enough the way we're doing it at the moment. Yeah, Sharon, similarly, I thought it was really interesting because it, it, I think it really got to the heart of how, you know, it's not, it's not just the, the policies and the, the policy frameworks. It's, it's about how, uh, how people are treated in yeah. the system, yeah. uh, and the relationships or lack of relationships that people have in that system. Um, you know, I, I did some work a few years ago on, on the last review of into the welfare system, and we did lots of, uh, engagement with people who were receiving uh, income support. And, you know, the two, the two kind of big things that came out consistently, one was concerns about the adequacy of payments, but the other one, which was almost as loud, was this sense of, uh, not fearing engagement with the system and being treated with you know, they wanted to have dignity in their relationship with the system. Um, so yeah, really important issue. And I agree with you. It was, uh, you know, it was really powerful how they, these three very different perspectives came together, uh, to give a very strong message about how there just needs to be some really fundamental rethinking about how the welfare system works in Australia. And I think as part of that, we have to think fundamentally about what kind of society do we want? Do we want a society that is egalitarian and fair and just and gives people a fair go, which is the kind of rhetoric we like to engage in? Or do we want policy that creates a divided society where some people are treated as though they are worthless and are never treated with dignity or respect? Um, and I think at Christmas, mm. <laughs> you no, know, we should be saying very clearly, we want a fair, just society. Now, No Good Christmas Party is uh, complete without a couple of very special surprise guests. Uh, and our surprise guests are, we reached out to a couple of members of our pod group on Facebook, Policy Forum Pod. If you're not already part of the gang, do join us there and ask them for their picks. So the first up is Mark Zanker. Let's have a listen to what Mark chose. Mark Zanker here. Ian Chubb and Anna Maria Arabia's discussion around getting science into policy, politics and public discourse was a timely contribution. Over recent years, governments have actively eroded our capacity for scientific research on the basis that it is too costly, and in doing so have eroded our human capital. There have been drastic reductions in research budgets at the CSIRO and universities. The government wants the CSIRO to focus purely on matters considered to have some economic advantage to Australia as viewed through the prism of endless economic growth and productivity increases. Science has to some extent been weaponised to suit powerful vested interests like the fossil fuel and petrochemical industries and their particular agendas such as the expansion of hydraulic fracturing or the continued use of agricultural and veterinary chemicals where significant questions exist about the long-term effects of some of these. Parts of science have been demonised. Hydrological research and water conservation to preserve ecosystems is one example. This is a serious problem. 
there is a big role for improved public communication about the benefits of science and more investment in research and the enhancement of public knowledge is must be a good starting point for this purpose. Mark, thank you so much for sharing that one with us. And I agree, that was a really interesting podcast, really enjoyable podcast. Two very big hitters in the world of science policy, talking about some of the challenges that scientists face in terms of getting their voice heard in policy, but also some of the challenges that policymakers face in terms of actually getting science to inform the policy that they are creating. It was a terrific choice and a terrific pod. Many thanks, Mark. I just wanted to give a, a shout out to Mark and to so many of our fantastic um, group on Facebook. But Mark is always so engaged. He always comes up with such great ideas and I always enjoy reading his comments so much. So thank you, Mark, and Merry Christmas to you. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you, Mark, from all of us. So next up from the Facebook podcast group is Liam Hughes, who's also one of our regular commenters on our pod. So I would love hearing Liam's thoughts. And he chose uh, the podcast that we did called Rusted Off, which was a panel discussion with Gabrielle Chan, Caroline Hendricks, Peter Holding, and Dennis Ginevan, where the panel took a look at how rural Australia is leading a political shift away from the major parties and towards a new way of doing democracy. Let's have a listen to what Liam had to say. G'day Martin and everyone from Policy Forum Pod. My favourite podcast over the last year has been Gabrielle Chan and the rest of the um, team's podcast talking about uh, Rusted Off, um, why voters are disaffected in regional Australia. As someone who grew up in regional Australia, I thought the podcast was very powerful. It, It discussed the problems that regional Australia faces, and it also um, gave some really good solutions as to how to fix them. So thanks very much for that. Thank you very much for that comment, Liam. Um, yeah, very interesting here. It seemed, there seems to be a bit of a theme around um, political and loss of poli- uh, trust in politics throughout our podcasts. I thought this was a really interesting podcast too, Yulia, because it it highlights what to me is a disconnect between the way in which some politicians and some parties talk about the bush and the way they represent the bush and the values that people in the bush hold and what people who live in rural areas actually want and what's important to them. And I think we we see that at the moment as we see bushfires, you know, devastating the country and a disinclination from the coalition government particularly to talk about that in the context of climate change. But then people who are on the ground saying, you know, we need to think about this in the context of climate change because these are our lives, this is our land, this is the place we love and it's being devastated. So I think, you know, we're we're seeing some of the issues that were raised in that podcast being played out at the moment. And I think they'll continue to play out again and again as there's this kind of growing disconnect between what life is in rural areas um, and what the, the representatives claim it to be. I think what I enjoyed about that podcast was, I mean, all of those things that you've talked about there, but also it was quite a positive podcast. It talked about, you know, specific measures that communities can take when they feel that, you know, politics or policy has let them down um, to actually kind of take action. And that, again, has been a theme that we've seen sort of running through a lot of the podcasts this year. So wonderful choice, Liam. And uh, it's a lovely surprise to have both you and Mark choose podcasts for us. Thank you to both of you. Really appreciate you doing that. Now, earlier this week, another of our regular podders popped in to give us an early Christmas gift with his pick. Uh, so let's hear from Quentin Grafton. Merry Christmas, everybody. My favorite podcast is by Peter Yu, and that was broadcast on the October 26th in, uh, last year in 2018. 
So Peter is a Yaru man from Broome in the Kimberley region. He's had a whole range of experiences and leadership roles uh, in that region, uh, but also beyond here in Australia at, at, a, at a national level. And so Peter was talking to us about what's going on in the north. He told us about his vision for the north, the vision from, from his perspective and his uh, people's perspective. He talked about the importance of country, he talked about the importance of the uh, resources, the water and the land, and the importance of uh, social and cultural values that the people of the north have. He also highlighted the risks in terms of potential development that's planned. Not that he's against development. It's just the question of that, that sort of development needs to be done in partnership, in true partnership with the First Peoples uh, of the North and indeed of Australia. From my perspective, and certainly Christmas is the time to think about, think about this, is uh, values. What's important to us and what matters? And uh, we have uh, the Rachel Perkins Boya lectures that have come out from the ABC in the last few weeks. We have the Uluru Statement, a vision for Australia, my view, from 2017. We have opportunities as we enter the new year to actually do something about this, recognize the past, actually do something today in the present. So the future holds a better set of outcomes for all Australians immigrants, people who were born here, and people who have traditions going back more than 60,000 years, the first peoples of Australia. Let's come together, all three of us, for, uh, for the new year, and let's make sure that we can actually deliver better outcomes for everybody here now, right now in Australia. So let's have a quick listen to what some of Peter had to tell us back in October 2018. I think what we really need is a northern-centric focus in terms of coordination of providing um, prescribed body corporates and other Aboriginal organisations to develop some capacity, governance and management capacity uh, to engage with um, governments and, and policy and also engage with um, people wanting to use their land, third-party interests wanting to use their land. So they should have, a, I suppose, a um, single-access point, one-stop shop uh, to do two things. One is to ensure that the evidence base is there through having access to data. The other one is to ensure that there is support for governance and management to those corporations so they can actually interface with proponents. So thank you, Quentin. It's a terrific choice. It really was a very interesting discussion. Sharon, you were in that discussion. What were your key takeaways from it? Yeah, it was a real privilege to be in that conversation, Martin. Um, you know, Peter Yu is one of the, the outstanding leaders um, in Australia and I, I was reflecting when you were talking earlier about the, the pod on rural Australia and when you made the point that there were lots of positive, positive messages coming out of that pod. And I think this discussion with PDU was much the same. You know, we hear a lot of negativity around the challenges um, facing Indigenous people in Australia, about the challenges facing the rest of the country in trying to do things much better. But... Um, Peter talked about what has been happening, particularly among the Yaru people, um, thinking differently about concepts of well-being, taking control of the things that really matter in their community and forging a different path. So one of the things that I took from that conversation were, were some of the, the ideas and the models about how we can do things differently and better and how we can learn from what Indigenous leaders and Indigenous communities are putting into practice. So thanks once again, Quentin, for that choice. Uh, so the last person around the Christmas tree who hasn't given a gift is me. So uh, what is my gift? None of you seem to be asking, so I will answer anyway. But uh, Sharon and I were going to arm wrestle about who would choose this particular podcast. And she would have undoubtedly won that arm wrestle. I have every confidence in that. But I would have. at the end of the day, I wrote the script. So I wanted a penalty shootout rather than an arm wrestle. <laughs> oh, I don't think that would have gone well for me either. Uh Anyway, so my choice is the podcast that we did with Philip Alston, who is the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty. Um, and in it, Philip talked about tackling climate change. He talked about Brexit and uh, Boris Johnson's Britain and why the gloves need to come off. Let's have a bit of a listen to this. That was strange because austerity was a notion that had come to be associated with 
uh, externally imposed uh, programs, whether it was the IMF or external creditors or whoever, but the British government uh, voluntarily went into an austerity mode. My argument, though, is that whatever policy option was chosen by the government, uh, the real uh, dimension of austerity was ideological. In other words, it was used as a, uh, a context in which to justify the introduction of classic neoliberal policies where you elevate the importance of work or employment as the only real solution to poverty. You cut benefits, you um, expand bureaucratic and other demands to discourage people from applying for benefits. And you generally send the message that you're better off doing a really lousy job that pays very little than trying to get any sort of benefits, even if you suffer from a severe disability or some other major problem. So this was a real highlight of the year for me, getting the chance to sit down and talk to Philip Alston, um, particularly about his work in the UK, where he looked at the effect of universal credit and the terrible things uh, that the rollout of that has done to the uh, those already living in poverty in the country. But it was also a highlight because I'm a big fan of uh, – researchers and academics that are prepared not just to talk to their research, but to really speak truth to power and stand up to some uh, serious, strong, vested interests. And in Philip's case, he took the fight directly to the UK government who had rolled out universal credit in the first place. He copped an enormous amount of flack from the media and from the government itself. And that takes some courage, I think, to uh, not only get your research out there, to be really firm and stand behind it, and to do so even whilst you're coming under personal attack. So it was really interesting for me to hear not just about his research, but also about, as a researcher, how you cope with that kind of level of hostility coming towards you when you are sharing your research. What do you think about that, Sharon? This was a fantastic conversation to be part of. Um, and Philip is such a champion of human rights and social justice and has been for decades. And the work that he did in the UK um, and that we discussed with him receives so much attention. But he does this work in countries around the world. And so, you know, again and again, he's calling governments on um, what they're not doing well and he's pointing out where thing, good things are happening. So it's incredible work that, that he's doing. I wanted to link that podcast to a couple of other things that we have on Policy Forum Net. Um, one is the public lecture, and I think that's actually available through our Facebook page, um, the public lecture that Philip did while he was in Canberra that connected poverty and climate change. So that was a really important and, and powerful conversation that he was leading there as well. And I also wanted to draw our listeners' attention to a recent piece by Fran Bennett, um, which is on um, In Focus Poverty. And she draws on the work that Philip did in the UK, but she also draws on her own research that highlights the, the very negative impact on women in particular of universal credit and of the approach that's been taken in the UK. So it was a great discussion with Philip, but it also connected to a number of other things that we've discussed um, over the course of this year. Yeah. I thought it was um, fascinating. I wish I had been in the room on that one. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think in relation to universal credit, Philip has done an incredible job of uh, of raising the profile of the challenges and consequences and devastating con consequences that it's having in the UK. And I think for us here in Australia and in our region, it's a great example of uh, of how not to reform a welfare system. Um, you know, often we look abroad for how to do things. Um, and I think he's really kind of highlighted how we do not want to go down the avenue that the UK has gone down. Um, but yes, just, I mean, also on the kind of, uh, the Philip Alston fan club, he's such a wonderful, uh, example of, of leadership in this area. Um, and yeah, we could, we, we could learn a lot from him in that regard. 
I think what everyone's been saying in this room is just the impression at how incredibly brave he is and how re- he relentless he is in following this, his ideas and his, I- and not just ideas, but also ideals in this space. And I thought that from what resonated with me uh, from the lecture and both the podcasts also, him not just drawing attention to climate change as a phenomenon and how it um affects states as unitary actors and societies as a whole, but particularly shining a light on how people who are already disadvantaged will have even more, uh, even heavier burden to carry once climate change starts playing out in more extreme ways. And I think we're already starting to see that more and more every day. So, and I thought that was a very powerful point to make. So there's one final gift left under the tree. So how about you unwrap it for us, Sue? Yes, I'm honoured to give out the final gift today. Um, so this was a podcast uh, called In the Public Service We Trust. Um, and for this episode, we invited in David Thody, Helen Sullivan and Glyn Davis uh, to discuss why confidence in institutions is so low. It's, you know, one of the themes we've talked about today about the, the decay of trust um, and we put a spotlight on the Australian Public Service Review, which David Thody is currently chairing, um, which is looking, among other things, at how we can re- rebuild trust in the bureaucracy. Uh, here's a clip. I would hope that the public service is you know, dynamic and flexible and highly trusted would be a really good starting point. It's got to be seen as a really attractive place to work because we've got to attract really good people. And we do today, Mm. but we need to continue to do that. And I hope that it would change from being what at times is seen as a little insular to being this external embracing learning organization Mm. that reaches across the traditional boundaries uh, because at times it is, uh, I think, caught uh, in that process. And and I think just lastly, it has got to be at the digital forefront. It's got to be able, not the hype, but really be using, you know, it has incredible sources of data, using those technology uh, capabilities to really deliver great outcomes for Australians. So what I liked about this, and we, you know, we heard it there, was that David Thody is starting to articulate a a vision for what the public service uh, needs to be like and should be like in the future. Um, uh, you know, and I think it, it also illustrate, illustrates the power of an independent review. So David Thody comes from the private sector. He used to be head of Telstra. Um, and I think this year and do, you know, whilst the review's been going on, we've been having a much better and more open conversation about the role of the public service. Um, and you, and the role of the public service in, in all of the, you know, big policy topics that we've been talking about today. Um, you know, and that conversation has been happening inside government, but it's also been extending beyond government. And, you know, I, I think it's great that we've had, I think, at least two podcasts which have focused on the review this year. Um, so yeah, good that we're having this conversation. Yeah, I, I agree, Sue. And it's a very exciting vision that David outlines. And of course, here at Crawford, we, so many of our students are from the public sector. We engage closely with, with public servants um, on a daily basis. And I guess we know how committed those people are and how important the job is that they play to policy and to the outcomes that affect all our lives. So I think this is a space where it's really important for all of us to be watching and engaging and seeing where we head. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the APS review have now submitted their uh, report to government. Uh, we haven't seen uh, seen it yet. It hasn't been made public and the government haven't responded yet. But that, I think it will be interesting for us here on the pod to keep an eye on that and, you know, maybe maybe look into it once we, we hear the outcome of that. Future podcast material. Yes. 
Well, there have been some fantastic gifts today, uh, and it was actually really hard to choose the podcasts that we all wanted to pick for this end of year special because there have been so many great podcasts. So I want to take the opportunity to thank everybody who has taken part in one of our podcast discussions this year. There have been hundreds of people. Uh, we really appreciate the time and energy and enthusiasm that everybody has put into it. And of course, I want to take the opportunity to thank, you know, my fellow podcasters today, you know, Sharon and Sue, Yulia, Quentin, Paul, as well as Mark and Liam, our listeners. Thank you all. But before... And, and I'm just going to cut you off, Martin, as I so rarely do. Never. Um, <laughs> to say thank you. I mean, as always, this pod would not happen if it wasn't for your commitment and your leadership and the amount of incredible work that you put into it. So thank you. And Yulia, thank you. Your contribution in making this happen is extraordinary. So thank you both. Oh, oh, that's thank you, so Sharon. lovely. Thank you. Now, before you go, though... Uh, as is customary after you've had a few too many sherries around the Christmas tree. It's We're going to, to sing. Uh, no, <laughs> it's time <laughs> to start thinking about your New Year's resolutions. So from perhaps from a policy point of view or maybe from a personal point of view, now I'm going to go to you first, Yulia. What's your New Year's resolution? I'm generally not a big fan of making lists at the beginning of the year and about things that I should do or shouldn't do or whatever. But I think one thing which I recently have decided for myself is that I want to have more out-of-the-box conversations with people, um, particularly people who disagree with me. Um, I've... Well, we I've spent my life probably in a bit of a bubble as well, and that hasn't changed throughout university. But I um but having been having conversations with people who think differently, um, particularly over the last year, and I wanna sort of intensify that and try and have conversations which are not just me sheer fights about who's right and who's wrong, but really trying to come from a point of empathy and trying to understand where people people are coming from and just kind of broaden my horizon in that space. That is a lovely New Year's resolution, very sensible and uh, and one I think we could all follow. What about you, Sharon? What is your New Year's resolution? Well, uh, Yulia, I love your resolution. That's fantastic. But I feel I can't steal it now. So um, I have a couple of resolutions. So on the uh, more professional side of life, uh, we've been working um, in the area or doing our research, the area of better understanding childhood poverty from the perspective of children. We've been doing work around um, developing a way of measuring multidimensional poverty that's sensitive to gender. Um, and that work has been really focused on collecting the data and building the evidence and doing the analysis. So into the new year, I really want to move much more proactively towards engaging with policymakers, with service providers, with people who are working in this area um, and and thinking through how this work that we've been doing can really make a difference in the real world. On the personal front, I want to do the City to Surf again in August. So that means I need to stay vaguely fit between now and then or I will again almost die on Heartbreak Hill. And as a good friend and colleague, Sue, it is my New Year's resolution that I'm going to work with you from January to identify Christmas presents other than socks. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sean, perhaps that should be my New Year's resolution, that I no longer buy socks for for people for Christmas. Um, I do. I, I um, One of my resolutions that I am actually introducing before Christmas is to... Uh, consume and spend less. I know which sounds very worthy as well, but we're having a very minimalist Christmas this year, much to my children's disgust. Um, but I think I'd like to take that a little bit more into next year as well and just think, think more about how uh, we can live life a little bit simpler. You know, I think I should take that on board, Sue. I mean, I go so crazy at Christmas time that my children say we can be a bit more restrained at Christmas. You know, I go totally over the top. So it's the only time I do. (laughs) Your children say that. Yeah. That's impressive. I I go crazy. Raise your children really well then. Your your children are the adults in the room. (laughs) Yeah, they they kind of are on every issue actually, yes. (laughs) 
And Martin, you're being rather quiet on this. What's Ooh, your New Year's yeah. resolution? I feel like perhaps the, the the my New Year's resolution should be a gift that I give to the world, which is perhaps stop talking about Brexit quite so oh, much, yes. stop talking about football all the time. Maybe, so maybe the gift I should give is the is saying less. Martin, Love no it. one minds you talking about football. It's just Crystal Palace. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so there we go. That brings us to the end. Listeners, if you get bored over the Christmas break, and I sincerely hope you don't, but if you do, I hope you take the time to listen back to some of these fantastic episodes which we've highlighted today. We'll leave a link to each of them in the show notes. Uh, and in case you your New Year's resolution is to take your career up a notch uh, and you haven't gotten a gift to yourself that will last beyond the festive season, I would strongly recommend you check out Crawford School's range of degrees. There's a huge range available there and one that will definitely fit your interests. If you've enjoyed Policy Forum Pod today or over the course of the year, please do hit that subscribe button. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, And feel free to leave us a nice five-star review. We really welcome those, and they're a huge help to us in getting the word out about the podcast. That would be a fantastic Christmas gift for us, I think. So we look forward to seeing you again next year. But until then, enjoy the holidays, enjoy the festive season, have a great start to the new year. So until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And for me, goodbye. Have a nice festive season. And for me, Surigan, cheerio. From me, Sharon Bessel, wishing you all the peace and joy of Christmas. And bye-bye for now. Bye. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.